0: For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit JDPower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or SleepNumber.com.
1: Hello, and welcome to Rational Security, the who am I and what is Jonathan Rauch doing here on our studio edition. I'm Shane Harris of The Daily Beast. Joined by my friend and special guest, Jonathan Houch. Hello, Jonathan.
2: Hi, Shane. What are you Hi, doing everywhere. here? I don't know. I wandered in and someone said, here's a microphone. <laughs> that, that's how we roll here. It's dangerous at
0: Brookings. They <laughs> put a microphone in front of you. That's, you don't know what's going to happen. That's how there's well, being in the
2: Brookings when you put a microphone in front of someone. They begin to hold forth in a very authoritative <laughs> way. <That's> Jonathan,
0: <laughs> I'm so glad you're here to hold forth with us.
3: In an authoritative way. You're a huge fan of this podcast. You should all know. <laughs> what's that we- a podcast? <laughs> <laughs>
1: When we asked Jonathan
3: to uh, critique the podcast, uh, I believe his he came back and he said, uh, "I love exploring deep wilderness, and that podcast you and Tammy are doing with Shane is too long, and really, it just takes up too much of my time." So here he is. Welcome.
1: <laughs> this is going to be an extra long edition just for you, John. <laughs> Uh, I'm joined as always by my friends uh, Tamara Kaufman Woodis, hello Tamara. Hello, Shane. And Benjamin Woodis, Ben. Hey. Um, I actually, I have to say, I, I had a, a very multi-culti experience this morning. I went to my first briss. Ah.
3: It was not, so mine, not mine. Not
1: mine. <laughs> not yours.
3: So I was, I was say, wondering how many brisses you've had.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So I've got <laughs> the, to the te- first <laughs> one didn't take. I,
3: <laughs> I've got to tell you my favorite Moil joke. Okay, Moil for, for those who. Uh, don't speak Hebrew is the person who performs the breath. Is that
1: like his only job, by the way? Well, you know, it's a special skill. It's like on. a busy year, busy guy. You yeah. want
0: him to be expert.
1: Uh, he also was very harried this one. He was like, I was stuck in traffic on 16th Street. I'm like, this sounds like a stand-up routine. I'm like, you need to calm down, just take a breath. Okay. For anyway. his
3: hands So guys so guys <laughs> I'll, guys I'll walking, get to that in a second. <laughs> guy's walking down <laughs> Times Square and uh, he's looking for a watch. And he sees one of those you know electronics stores, you know, in Times Square, they have all this huge amount of electronics in the windows, and he sees some, some nice watches. and he goes inside to take a look at them. But inside, it's just a bare room with uh, an old Hasidic man sitting on a chair. And the guy looks up and he says, "Can I help you?" And the guy says, um, "Yeah, I saw some nice watches in the window. I thought I'd uh, come in and try some of them on." And the old man says, we don't do watches here. And he says, what do you do here? The guy says, I'm a moil. We do circumcisions here. And the man says, but why are there watches in the window? And the guy looks at him and he says, what do you want I should put in the
2: window? And you do know the difference between the rabbi and the moil. The rabbi collects... These the Moyle keeps tips. <laughs> what,
3: you know about what? the Moyle who had a sale. <sighs> oh God. He put out a big sign that says circumcisions ten percent off. <laughs> you yeah, know.
1: This played. just raises so many more questions that I had before I walked into this, this <laughs> podcast. Like, what do they do with the tips? A I've
2: good been... week to talk about the religious freedom restoration. <laughs> <laughs> this is our segue. <laughs> this is our segue.
1: Nice segue, John.
3: Uh, Meanwhile, he did have, back on rational security,
1: yes, he did have steady hands, by the way, and handled a baby like it was a sack of potatoes. Like all the parents were just like, "Oh, don't drop the baby!" He's Like, yeah, you know, this, <laughs> this man clearly has handled eight-year-old, he's a eight-year-old. Pro. He knows what he's doing. This week on the show, uh, cyber attacks are way more damaging than we thought. Saudi Arabia's Shiites fear a backlash in the Yemen war, and Congress is up to absolutely nothing on surveillance reform and the new AUMF. Plus, in our object lesson segment. What you, too, you too can take down a mugger while wearing high-heeled shoes. Um, we're first, we're going to talk a little bit about the Iran deal, because we uh, presciently or prematurely discussed it about 18 hours last week before it was announced. So, quick takes, thoughts, after you've had a week to digest, tomorrow on the Iran framework agreement to a deal, something.
0: Indeed. Well, as as I said last week, I expressed my skepticism, and so I have to, this week, first of all, eat crow and okay. say... Uh, they got to yes, at least on the framework, although there's still a long way to go between that and a final deal. Um, but I have to say, too, that I was surprised, pleasantly surprised, both by the degree of detail that they did manage to to get in this framework deal uh, on the constraints that Iran's program um, would be placed under, and um, pleasantly surprised also uh, that they reached the deal. I think um, there was a lot of uh, there was a lot of reason for concern. There's still a lot of reason co- for concern about dynamics within the P5 plus one sort of urgency to get something done before Congress jumps the gun on new sanctions, and maybe that was leading uh, to a rush to, to cave on certain things. But the framework, um, as it's been expressed by the administration at least, looks like they got a lot of what they wanted on centrifuges, on the duration of the agreement, on the intrusive inspections and verification it's uh it's pretty strong.
1: Yeah, I was actually the pleasantly surprised was the word that I kept hearing from particularly former intelligence officials who were not expecting to get to this level of specificity, I think on it and I mean a healthy skepticism about what's going to happen in the next few months, but it seems like everybody walked away feeling a lot better than we thought they would.
2: How different is the US understanding of the framework
1: from the Iranian understanding? This, this is a great question. So I mean, is it is it that the talking points are different in the translation? is the emphasis, there's certainly a different emphasis being placed. So Rouhani and Zarif, I guess, well, maybe both of them said the sanctions will be lifting right away, whereas we're saying, no, 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 the sanctions will lift when you've met certain obligations under the framework
3: agreement. So Maybe it means the sanctions will be lifted right away when you've met certain conditions under the framework agreement. Well,
0: I, it does seem from the plain language of the not- The U.S. fact sheet, but the actual release, the joint release of the P5 plus 1 in Iran, that's exactly what it says. So there's some agreed language, at least on the principle under which sanctions relief will take place, but I have to say sanctions relief is the least spelled out part of the framework according to all the information we have. The Iranians, in the meanwhile, keep saying that they're going to release their own fact sheet on the deal, but they haven't yet done so. Raising the question, are they having internal debates about the nature of what was agreed to or whether they can afford to put out their own version of what was agreed to? Uh, But until they've done that, it's hard for us to say what the differences in understanding may be.
2: Yeah.
1: Okay, let's go to wordplay. Um, Ben, why don't you start uh, and update us on all of the great work that the U.S. Congress is up to on important national security matters. Right. So I
3: brought as my wordplay today nothing, absolutely nothing. And the reason for that was that I, yesterday, sat down to write a blog post on lawfare about what Congress was up to on reform of Section 215 of the Patriot Act. That's the, the part that uh, authorizes the bulk metadata program. And what Congress is up to on that is nothing. Uh, with a deadline where it's going to expire less than now two months away, uh, Congress has Uh, you know, at the end of last year, killed the bill that was going to do that and has not really lifted a a finger, let alone an arm, to uh, figure out what it's going to do as that deadline approaches. And then today I was interested in the question, and I wrote about the question of what happens if Congress does nothing as it seems to be doing on the President's request for an ISIL AUMF. And of course, again, Congress is, I think not, you know, again, not deciding not to pass one, simply not able to uh, muster the energy to get it done. And the consequences of that are, in my opinion anyway, uh, an acquiescence to something that large numbers of of members of Congress purport to oppose, which is, the president's assertions of executive authority to do what he's doing in Iraq under previous authorizations. Uh, and so I've just been struck by the degree of Congress and Congress's abandonment of the field in areas of play where even you know relatively gridlocked Congresses in the past have always managed to function pretty effectively. Um, so as you know, as King Lear would say, nothing will come of nothing. But in this case, uh, certain things will come of nothing and they will be bad things.
1: Jonathan, I, I wanna well I wanna add, I want to talk about that point too, but you as a longtime observer of function and dysfunction in Washington, I mean when you see matters of, you know, grave importance, you know, before the legislation, it's not just these two that you know Ben's mentioning. I mean what is your sort of your your reading, your take of these days of, you know, Explain. And are we sort of at an impasse here institutionally, or is there something that could be done to Excuse me, did the d- Did you just
2: ask if we're at an impasse institutionally about this Congress? Because well, I, mean, I think the answer is pretty much, yeah. I'm, s- I'm setting you On up for every your <laughs> On every issue. I mean, it's yeah, national security, an, but I I not mean, just. So, of course, these guys are having a very hard time governing for all the reasons we know. The Republican Party is divided. The Democrats are not feeling cooperative. There's a presidential race starting. Obama unifies them in not wanting to get anything done. Um, But what's striking in this case is that people who really know this law, which I don't say that until now, this branch of law, NSA and having some reasonable statutory grounding for these collection programs has been a happy exception they've always figured out a way to at least do that and it has not fallen into the same quagmire as say everything else mm-hmm. so what's striking is if the ink blot is now spreading to so that there's more ink blot than there is paper
1: yeah and and i think it's it's on both of these issues one the NSA and the two the AUMF it seems to me the AUMF issue is potentially more problematic I mean, if the if the NSA authorities expire, there's a part of me that thinks that everyone will just sort of wipe their hands of it, move on. I, I, I'm not sure how much the NSA itself even thinks that the program anymore is so incredibly valuable that it re, you know requires going to the mat for it. But you know at the same time, Congress members of Congress who talked about how essential it is to counter terrorism are going to look like fools if we don't pass it again. But you know I'm struck by your your observation too that. This is, the, this is like the easy thing, right? This was the easy thing for them to reauthorize, you would
3: you Yeah, would so I, I actually disagree with you. I think they're, very, they're both very consequential and for different reasons. The reason the NSA uh, 215 authorization is consequential is as a demonstration project that Congress is not capable anymore of being a caretaker of the statute, exactly the way Jonathan described. And what is coming up in a year and a half is the 702 program, which also has an uh, expiration date on it. I believe it's the end of 2017. And unlike this program, which you're right, the, you know, NSA, it's not that important to NSA. The 702 program really is. And so I think if, if you're an intelligence community lawyer who has to think about what authorities you're going to have, and you've always counted on Congress to take care of you. And Congress, in this context, suddenly finds that it is not capable of making a decision. It's not deciding not to pass something. It's not deciding to end the program. It's not capable of making a decision. Uh, that's got to scare you in terms of what that means for your authorities a year and a half from now.
0: You know. It- it strikes me that um, on both these issues, whether it's um, cyber surveillance or the AUMF, these are issues on which the Republican Party, the majority party in Congress, is itself pretty divided. And you know, Rand Paul announced this week. Ted Cruz announced last week. We've now got clear polls of a battle within the Republican Party on major foreign policy and national security issues, and if the republicans don't know amongst themselves what they want to do on these big important questions it's not surprising that that you know they can't overcome internal party divisions they're not going to be able to get anything through congress where they need the help of democrats too the second point is that it strikes me that since the republicans took over both houses in january we've seen repeatedly that they i don't know they They can't seem to manage the process well mm-hmm. um, and so part of this isn't about the substance of the issue and it's not about partisanship and it's not even about tensions with the executive branch. It's just about the fact that the majority party in Congress can't run Congress
3: right. although to be fair to the Republicans, the bill last year that was so carefully negotiated between you know Senator Leahy, Senator Feinstein, the intelligence community and the uh, civil liberties community, died under Democratic leadership of, of the Senate. So, Fair th- enough. So, you know, it, it, it's actually that the Democratic Senate was incapable of getting it done, and the Republican Senate is incapable of mustering itself to, you know, to correct the mistake.
2: Just for the record, the biggest loser here is not the intelligence community, it's the Congress. Um, on the one hand, they're united in their inability to get stuff, crucial stuff like this done. On the other hand, they're united in their condemnation of President Obama for increasingly using, or they would say, abusing his executive power. Well, if they don't act, someone else will. That's how power works. It enters to fill a vacuum. And they're increasingly complaining about the fruits of their own dysfunction. That, by the way, is part of the issue with the Iran deal. Right, Obama's got to decide whether to send some version up there, and he's looking at what's going on in the Hill right now and saying, am I willing to risk my legacy in the hopes that these guys will be able to, to get something done? Um, so this is having ramifications all the way up and down the line.
1: Yeah, when, when the Republicans can't get to yes, but the Iranians can, that's, um, that's uh, saying something. <laughs> that's saying something. <clears throat> uh, all right, tomorrow let's do your wordplay. Um, Shiites in Saudi Arabia are fearing a backlash. There is mudslinging on social media. Tell us what's going on.
0: Sure. Well, I brought uh, today a Washington Post story by Brian Murphy um, with some great reporting from Qatif, from the eastern province of Saudi Arabia. Um, Some percentage, uh, somewhere between 10 and 20 percent of Saudi Arabia's population are Shia uh, Muslims, and uh, they're concentrated in the eastern province, which is also the most oil-rich part of the country, which makes treatment of this minority a particularly sensitive and high-stakes topic for the Saudi government. And this, you know, this has been an issue of significant domestic focus and occasional controversy over the years. But I, I brought this in today, and the reason it's getting attention right now is because of the intervention in Yemen. Um, the, the Saudis and their uh, Sunni Arab allies, um, fighting against the Iranian-backed Houthis, uh, who are um, members of the Zaidi sect, it's an offshoot of Shia Islam, uh, are fighting in Yemen, and. Unfortunately, this war has come to symbolize and and has really exacerbated in the region a sectarian Sunni Shia conflict that you see playing out now on Twitter, um, on Arab satellite television, uh, you know, clerics who are um, riding their own political horses on on this issue, flogging the sectarian issue, and really raising tensions. We're seeing it now play out inside Saudi Arabia, and one of the dangers for Saudi Arabia in deciding to launch this intervention in Yemen, which they did for reasons of state uh, that are quite understandable, but one of the risks to them has been that it would cause greater sectarian tension within the country. They can't rally Saudis around the flag in Yemen without generating more sectarian tension at home, and that's exactly what's happening. So we had some demonstrations uh, in the eastern province and some clashes um, with security forces. And this is probably the biggest uptick, I would say, in uh, sectarian tension in the eastern province that we've seen since 2011. Um, So we'll see how the Saudis try to play this, whether they seek to tamp down some of the sectarian sentiment that they've stirred up in the Gulf and around the region uh, for the sake of domestic peace, or whether they're just going to keep riding this horse because uh, their short-term imperative demands it. It's a dangerous game.
2: Are you telling me I now have to worry about sectarian warfare breaking out in Saudi Arabia, the last bastion of stability in the region?
0: Uh, I'm not sure it was ever quite appropriate to call it the last bastion of stability in the region. And I certainly wouldn't predict sectarian warfare. Um, But the fact is that (laughs) The things that the United States is consumed with in the region, the things that regional governments are consumed with, whether it's ISIS or Iranian adventurism, all of these were enabled and facilitated by the repression and governance failures of these governments. That's, That's what got us to where we are today. And Saudi Arabia suffers from the same deficits in that regard as the rest of the region, so we shouldn't be surprised that these things crop up.
1: And what's interesting here is that you can... You can look to Twitter and sort of as where the place where, as the Post article said, the smears have been confined to social media and the kind of you know the mutual trolling and the mudslinging that's going on, whereas usually like social media becomes sort of a place for people, I think, to vent and sort of say things that they would never say to each other in person and maybe a way to alleviate some tensions or keep them confined over here. It sounds like this is just exacerbating and becoming one more sort of you know, piece of grit in the gears, isn't it?
0: Absolutely. And I think we've seen this before, not just with social media, but traditional media as well. Uh, in 2011, in the spring, in Bahrain, when the Saudi government helped the Bahraini government forcibly put down demonstrations by Shia protesters, um, Saudi satellite television, Saudi preachers, and on Twitter and social media um, had just vicious, vicious anti-Shia rhetoric. and. Uh, and then, too, we saw a blowback in the eastern province. So um, there's this is a repeated pattern. The other thing, of course, is that Twitter in Saudi Arabia is not just one more place where people get to express themselves the way it is here. First of all, it's got incredible penetration. Mm-hmm. Uh, something like 20% of Saudi Arabia is on Twitter. And it is the only free expression zone in the country. And that means that allegations of corruption, rumors about the royal family, national security and sectarian uh, tensions all get aired on Twitter in a very, very heated way.
1: And it's 2.4 million, million is quoting the post, for 2.4 million active Twitter users in Saudi Arabia, which is close to 10% of their population, and that 2.4 million accounts for 40% of all Twitter accounts in the Arab world. That's right. hugely concentrated in Saudi
0: Right, which has implications not just for sectarianism, but also for ISIS. We were talking a few weeks ago about ISIS on Twitter, Mm -hmm. and a huge number of those ISIS supporters' accounts are based in
1: Saudi Arabia. All right, so another thing to worry about. Right, Jonathan, don't you feel better? Aren't you glad you came?
2: You know, I never thought I'd live to see the time when people would say, Lebanon's politics are simple.
1: <laughs> <laughs>
0: <laughs> and they do so well without a president. <laughs> um,
1: all right, we're going to go into my wordplay. Mine is actually an article uh, by Joseph Mann that ran in Reuters this week, who is a terrific cybersecurity reporter, as probably people who listen to this podcast already know. Um, he got an early look at a poll that was done by the Organization of American States that said, this was of uh, uh, countries, uh, you know, or, sorry, um, companies within the um, northern and southern hemispheric jurisdiction of the OAS. That found that forty percent of respondents had battled attempts to shut down their computer networks, and that uh, I'm just getting to the actual statistic here. Five hundred seventy-five percent of the respondents said they detected attempts to steal data, long considered the predominant hacking goal but that a very large and surprising number of respondents in this, 54%, more than half, said they encountered attempts to manipulate equipment through a control system. So what that means is what we're saying is that the idea of trying to steal data is what we kind of always thought hackers were up to. Now these companies are saying, actually, the big thing that we're seeing is attempts to actually manipulate physical facilities. And who are are the respondents in this poll? So they're talking, they they don't identify them in great detail, but they're doing a range of companies involved in various industries across the OAS sort of uh, um, jurisdiction. Um, Financial institutions are among them. Critical infrastructure companies are among them as well. Now, this could get into a little bit of a semantic kind of issue when you say, like, well, attempts to uh, manipulate equipment. But I think what they're trying to get at here is how many of these breaches are more than just stealing information and are about trying to do some physical damage either to machinery or to the data in them. And these respondents, anyway, are saying that, uh, um, that more than half of them are saying they've encountered those attempts.
2: So I just read a good book about this. It's called At War mm-hmm. by oh, Shane Harris. No. He's title. a
0: smart guy. And
2: very handsome. And you should see the neckties he favors. And I hear he went to a bris this morning. Really? Maybe he'll tell us about that. But that book put me in mind of, you know, yesterday the White House lost power for like two right. hours, as did the State Department. Right. And they're saying it's because a big piece of equipment, a pole or something somewhere toppled over. And that's what a, they want you to think. Is that what they want us to think? Or is that what really happened? And it B, if spectre. it had been if it had been a cyber attack, would we know about it?
1: Well, we would you can see the actual explosion. And these explosions are not that uncommon. Uh, I was talking with somebody who used to work in the energy sector yesterday about this. Who said, you know, you know there the scenario is that um, if there's a sudden surge in the system uh, and they don't sh- and they don't uh, essentially kind of power down fast enough, it can actually spark and ignite and light hydraulic fluid on fire. And that may be what happened here. If w- if there had not been a physical explosion or something to trace it back to, would we know about it? We wouldn't know right away. It would take time to go back and attribute that to the source. But there would be some pretty strong indications, I think, from going and looking at um, uh, the industrial control systems, whether there was a virus or a piece of malware in them. You know, you would have an absence of other potential explanations like a pole fell over. Or a squirrel got into a transformer. Squirrels, actually, loose squirrels and branches, <laughs> yeah, are the things that cause most power outages. So there was an immediate kind of um, um, observable cause to this. You know, but to your point, this is just it raises the other ask. Two other, two other things I found fascinating. One, how did the White House lose power? And why is the White House, you know, we don't think of the White House and everything in the White House like the Situation Room being vulnerable to, you know, power outages that affect Oops, all the other Oops, does buildings. anyone have a
2: candle? <laughs> right.
1: <laughs> <laughs> and someone over there told me that the generator did kick back in, although I'm not exactly clear how long that took. And yeah, it was out well, for a while at the State Department. The State
0: Department clearly had no backup generator. <laughs> yeah, which is astonishing, right? Yeah. So, I mean,
1: this this, this is reveal some of the, the major weaknesses in our infrastructure. Um, but had it been, and I mean, you know, this is, of course, where our minds go, at least mine does now, uh, to an attack of that nature. Um, it would be certainly the first documented, verifiable one in the United States, and it would be pretty astonishing if some skilled hacker out there actually decided to take out the particular network that feeds the White House. Of course, now apparently we know where that physical infrastructure is located. Right, it's and
0: someplace all in Maryland. That just to shut down the State Department press briefing.
3: Totally. So, <laughs> angry, angry hacker journalists out there. Fortunately, all that appears to be not the case. It really does appear to have been. You know, a pole fell over. But and it concentrates
2: exploded. the mind. Yes. I mean, what does the government do if the power goes out in the White House and the State Department, and because it's active malware, they can't get it back on? What? Yeah. What? Is
1: there a plan for that? This is that's a great question. I mean, how long does the backup generator actually last? I mean, one presumes. I maybe some of our readers will build right in with this, but that the sort of continuity of government plan for long-term power backup at the White House. Probably there isn't one, because the scenario was probably devised in the Cold War, and the assumption would be the White House has been evaporated.
3: Well, I, did, I did see Barack Obama the other day at the Home Depot buying a uh, gas-powered generator <laughs> and some awesome. lanterns. Nice. So it's good to know that, um, you know, if worse comes to worse. And, and, you know, and the guy was explaining to him, you can't use it indoors. You have to use it outdoors, but you can run the wire in
0: Uh-huh. Good. Well, if you work on emergency preparedness at the White House, please post on our Facebook page. We'd love to hear <laughs> le- from you. And let us know what
1: you're doing. <laughs> uh, you know Barack Obama was in that house being like, I can't wait to get out of here. Can <laughs> this we go old to crappy house where the lights can't stay on. Um, okay, let's move on to uh, object lessons. Um, Uh, Tomorrow, why don't you go first?
0: Sure. Uh, Well, I brought today, continuing my theme of Yemen and the implications of the Saudi military intervention in Yemen, I brought here a photograph. Uh, You can see that's me with short hair from my my time in the State Department. And with me is uh, Tawakal Karman, who is a Nobel Peace Prize laureate and Yemeni activist Uh, And she was uh, one of the primary leaders of the uprising in Yemen in uh, February 11, 2011 was when it started. Uh, She was out there in the square, a young married woman with a few kids, uh, nonviolent activist, and also a member of the Islah Party, which is the Muslim Brotherhood-linked party in Yemen. And this is what's interesting about Tawak Carmen. karman It's a bit of a story about what's happening in the region right now. Um, she uh, saw Saudi Arabia when she was uh, leading the uprising as um, an adversary of her movement and its goals because they were backing uh, Ali Abdullah Saleh, the president of Yemen, who she was trying to, to see step down. Uh, and her movement, of course, linked to the Muslim Brotherhood, seen by many uh, Sunni governments as an adversary, uh, but now with the Houthis having taken over Sanaa, uh, she's come out strongly in support of the Saudi-led intervention, and uh, and the feud with the Islah Party seems to be gone. Wow, Islah is now an ally in the effort to return the legitimate government to Yemen. So there you go, so regional are you politics about in a on? nutshell.
1: <laughs> My God, all in one photo. Wow. Um, Ben, what is your object lesson?
3: I am holding here in my hand one ticket to the Triple Entente Beer Summit, to which I am hereby inviting all listeners of this podcast. Uh, The Triple Entente Beer Summit is uh, a get-together of uh, rational security, the lawfare podcast, And the Steptoe Cyberlaw podcast. Our friends Stuart Baker et al. at the Steptoe shop um, have an amazing podcast on on cybersecurity and legal issues connected there, too. Uh, And we thought it would be fun to do kind of a live show uh, with lots of food and beer um, and to make a fundraiser for lawfare out of it. So we are... uh, Inviting you all to come. The tickets are not expensive. You can get them through the Lawfare website, um, and I am hereby giving this ticket away—a oh. uh, twenty-dollar value for the May seventh uh, Triple Entente Beer Summit. I'm giving it away to the Rational Security listener who tweets the most awesome uh, 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 link. To the uh, Lawfare Post and flacks this event in the most fabulous way. So uh, come join us and fabulous
0: if, flacking. Yeah, you got and, and
3: flack the Lawfare uh, 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 Triple Entente Beer Summit. Um, and please come out and join us. We're going to have a lot of fun. We may even throw in an impromptu chess clock debate where we force Jonathan. Roush to debate somebody he's never met on a subject he doesn't know anything about. Which
0: he could do even could
3: after totally a beer. Do that. He could totally handle himself. You could do this. <laughs> We're going to make that happen.
1: Uh, so, my object lesson, uh, lesson is a video, uh, the provenance of which I, I cannot really attest to, but it claims to be women performing self defense in 1947. And I'll just play a little bit for it here for everyone <coughs> in attendance. But as you can see, this is a uh, black and white footage of this woman who is wearing the most wonderful high-heeled shoes and overalls too um, performing various techniques for flipping biting punching ripping the hair out of a man who is playing the role of the attacker here she is grabbing him forcing his face into the ground he's gonna go up and get her again she comes up behind her, nope, not going to do it, she turns out, she, basically she looks like she could kill this man, <laughs> break every bone in his body, it's, this is vicious kind of stuff. And look great doing it. And she, do- great and she does doing look, it. look fabulous. She really does. And there are like other women in this video who are working out in dresses and they're all looking great and happy. Um, so I just thought this was just fantastic and, I, and, and what, Ben,
3: what is she doing in this video? Well, so um, first of all, um, most of the techniques that she's doing are certainly real. Um, this, is, this
1: is not fake self-defense.
3: No, no. I mean, it's it's performed in a theatrical, stylized kind of way, and that the is. the the person she's throwing around is clearly cooperating with her. But the techniques are real. Uh, a lot of them are techniques that um, I have studied in my Aikido training, and uh, again with sort of extra pummeling the person at the end or kicking. Um, but the throws are real, and uh, so it's. I, as best as I can tell, I've watched it a few times. The it is a combination of judo and um, and some sort of basic aikido done in a kind of aggressive, uh, you know, beat this knot out of somebody yeah. sort of way.
0: With but, some awesome jazz music too.
3: Yeah, and high heel. And I heels. Yes, and I. <laughs> you I, should try aikido
0: I, in high heels. So I
3: have never. It trained, was after five when she recorded. this. I've never <laughs> trained in 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 heels. Um, um, but well, I did, did. I did. Uh, when Shane posted this on my Facebook wall, my friend uh, Hilda, with whom I uh, uh, do Aikido, uh, suggested that we all train to these specific techniques from now on. And so uh, we're gonna we're gonna. The heels may make an appearance in Aikido. Just you I know, think yeah. Shane
0: wants to see that.
3: I do too. I, I think really should Train with
1: us. I, I, I'll outwear the heels. I mean, this woman is the greatest <laughs> generation right here. I also love, by the way, if it really was made in 1947. I've always had like this image of like, you know, women in that era like holding down the home front and just like this like a great time for women, and then like the men come home and then they have to kind of like, you know, fade back into the background or something. And I, I just love that this woman is out there just kicking ass. Now there is literally. one in reason. 1947. To, there
3: is one reason to suspect that it may not be real, at least may not be real in its date. i
1: ruin it for me.
3: Um Which is that the, wh- whatever she's doing, they are very clearly Japanese martial arts as opposed to either Chinese or Korean. Oh, And, um, and you're I, saying
0: that would not be politically correct in a 1947 film?
3: You know, 1947, I don't know whether we had yet sort of turned the corner from uh, these are you know, our enemies to these are, you know, people who uh, we, you know. Uh, learn
0: self-defense from. Learn self-defense <laughs> from
3: and, 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 and protect against the Soviets. Yeah. And so, yeah. so I, I, I actually have a little bit of suspicion that, that um, this may not have been actually 1947. You think it was later? I don't know. Well, we need to clear. I mean, it'd be interesting to know what the history. What the history? I want to believe that she worked for the
1: OSS, and this is what she learned. Oh, that would be so cool! Right, and she was a paratrooper. That's what we're going with. Because
0: we had a lot of those. We're doing that. Yeah. That's what happened. All right. Okay. Tell everyone. All right. Now that
1: brings us to the end of the show. Uh, Rational Security is a production of Spaghetti on the Wall Productions. You can check out more of our great podcasts at spaghettionthemallproductions.com. Follow us on Twitter at R A T L Security. And wherever you download the podcast, iTunes, Stitcher, Instacast, please, please, please leave a review, write comments in the section. Uh, it's a great way to make sure that people know about the show and to help others. Uh, and so spread the word for us, please. Our show is edited by Jen Howell. Our music this week was performed by, by, by my favorite, Moyle. No. <laughs> oh, no. 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 I don't even remember the Moyle's name. I should have caught it.
3: What do you want he should put in the window? <laughs> what do you want I should put in the window? That's good, right? Yeah.
1: No, no, our music is performed, as always, by Sophia Yeo. Who
3: has never performed a certain city. Correct.
1: <laughs> Not a moil. <laughs> On behalf of my friends Ben Wittis and Tamara Kaufman-Wittes, and our special guest, John Rausch, thank you for coming. Thank you. It's been fun. I'm Shane Harris. Thanks for listening, and we'll talk to you next week. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile oh. can't
0: stick out its tongue.